welcome to Beer Stories for Private Equity. Join us for our weekly happy hour, tapping into 27 years of PE experience, one pint at a time. Beer Stories for Private Equity is powered by Monogram Group. On today's show, we're excited to be joined by Reed Van Gordon from DeerPath Capital. And for Monogram Group, here's your host, Scott Markman. Please fasten your seatbelts. All right, Reed, uh, thanks for joining us today. Let's get into it. I want to start with some uh, background about your career. You went to Northwestern undergrad and you got your MBA from Wharton. How do you think those institutions kind of prepared you for your career in finance and, you know, sort of shaped your views about stuff and the world in general and kind of your day job? Good question. Going back, um, college is always hard because you think you're a, I don't know, high schooler who knows that all, knows everything, and that's not reality. For me, I applied a number of places. I think for Northwestern, the things I liked were, one, it seemed to have more of a liberal arts focus and kind of a core focus, which I thought was important to kind of know <clears throat> more than one thing. Um, the other thing I really liked that I do think is very unique about Northwestern is they're on the quarter system instead yep. of the semester system. And, and what that means is it's probably abnormal there to only single major pretty much everyone double majors. I did a double major in econ and biological sciences. My parents have all these like origin stories of me writing books only with numbers. So I think we knew pretty early on that finance and econ and business was going to be something where I was headed, but I liked science and wanted to keep doing it. I still do wonder exactly how I got into Northwestern because now the kids coming out of there seem <clears throat> kind of off the charts. I do remember horrifying someone in the admissions office. I was lucky enough, like we did a campus visit, went to go meet some assistant admissions officer, and the first thing out of my mouth was tell me about the club hockey program. Nothing <laughs> else. I think for me that science angle was really important for probably the first 10 years, maybe more of my career, where all my jobs had kind of a healthcare focus, whether it was kind of JP Morgan investment banking, but working on the healthcare team, whether it was healthcare private equity, and then kind of Golub where I was on the healthcare underwriting team. I think for me, there was a lot of positive of one just kind of competitive advantage against other candidates to get the jobs. But two, I just think healthcare is kind of more complex or has an added level of complexity that made it more enjoyable to work in, to study, to learn about. The nice thing about business school is you can try other industries, try other jobs, during your two years and no one cares. Where in kind of a normal, unfortunately linear career path, if you go off and go to corporate for a year, it's gonna be pretty hard to come back to finance. Or if you go off and do consulting, it's gonna be pretty hard to come back to finance after a year. Where business school gives you that opportunity. During business school, I had the opportunity to work at Genentech, 
out in California for a summer internship. And then I worked actually here in Chicago up in the Lake Forest suburbs with a GTCR portfolio company called Actian at the time. I remember one of the things I loved about J.P. Morgan early on was I was on their leverage finance team, which at the time was the biggest and kind of top of the kind of league tables for high-yield bonds, for leverage loans. I did join right before the Great Recession, so I had like 14 months of the best time and then 10 months of the worst time, basically. (laughs) For me, the thing I loved about the debt world was just the volume of transactions. That it wasn't like I would work on something for six months and that was the only thing. I was working on four or five, maybe more things, which I think is why I've always stayed in private, kind of in debt and in private credit. It's funny, you know, I know lots of folks that, you know, are in private credit and nobody has said to me in terms of why they do it versus other stripes of the private equity universe. To your point, a lot of people on the sponsor side just hone in on one or two things like and go go deep into it. And you're saying, no, you know, the, the private credit world is, is just wired differently and you're assigned to lots of different things at once and that you need that variety and that pace. I think private credit is a great place to learn because you see so many different types of transactions and you get such a breadth of knowledge. I guess the complaint sometimes would be you don't go very deep. And I I don't know, I, I think we all go pretty deep to make sure we understand the business and don't lose money. Do I know less than the private equity firm? less than the management team? Of course I do. Like I am involved in kind of decisions, but I'm not there sitting down, figuring out how to grow the business 20% versus 10%. I, I think that can be what's really exciting about the private equity is you get that from that early day, that brand new associate in private equity is advising the CEO on what company to buy or how to change kind of the revenue model. And that just, that doesn't happen very many other places to get that sure. at kind of a junior level. Reed, I want to pause us uh, just for a second because we need to um, live true to our word and we're going to introduce our, our beers for beer stores for private equity. Mine is a gift from my son for the holidays. I'm, I'm Jewish, so this, uh, you know, this is not a Christmas thing, but we had the holidays, we exchanged gifts, which was terrific. And this is a, a Belgian Trappist monk ale that is my favorite category because the flavors are intense and you know a couple and you're not quite sure where you are this is called n apostrophe ice nice chouffe and it is the holiday version with spices and on the label are elves so um what is your uh, beer du jour so mine i'm actually gluten-free so it's very rare that I actually have beer in the house. I had bought some for Christmas. So mine is actually Anheuser-Busch has a gluten-free brand called Redbridge. But my funny beer story to you recently is I was gifting someone beer recently. And um, Ooh, I, I uh, accidentally <laughs> sent them non-alcoholic Bush. Not even just bush, non-alcoholic bush. It's sort of like saying non-alcoholic water, but I digress. 
Yeah, and uh, I sent him more than just that, so it was okay. I didn't do a complete can of uh, faux pas, but he, he gave it as a white elephant gift. So I want to talk a little bit um, about Deer Path. I mean, you know, we worked with you folks in kind of remaking your brand and had a wonderful, you know, process and relationship. And, uh, you know, I learned something about the model and, you know, kind of your secret sauce which makes you different better. But to the degree that you want to chat about that with our listeners. So what, what do you want to share about the firm and how you approach things and why? Yeah, so I, I think where Deerpath plays is uh, the lower middle market sponsor back deals. Um, we think that is just a very good kind of supply demand imbalance that there's a lot of deal flow and there's not a lot of lenders that attack that market. We built a really nice business over 15 years. I also get kind of the opportunity to help grow and build a business. So I'm kind of itching that entrepreneurial niche. I, I remember my old boss at Golub. I remember asking him one day, like, why did he stay at Golub for when I left, he had been there 12 years or something. Obviously, Gal has been immensely successful, so that that's part of the answer, and he's still there today. But his answer was he gets to be intrapreneurial. So instead of building his own business, he's building a part of the business inside Gal, and mm -hmm. he kind of focused on the healthcare side. You can. I don't know, scratch that entrepreneurial itch or kind of meet that need of wanting to build something, even if it's not your firm. So when you think about uh, James, the, you know, the founder of the firm, the other guys that he worked with, what do you think about sort of the culture, and I'll call it the values, or just the drivers? Because no two firms are exactly the same, right? You all do the same stuff, but every firm is wired differently. You know, culture is always a hard word for me because... I think it's really hard to define culture. I think it's really hard to write it down. And like, I know, I forget who said this, someone, but they're like, once you're in it, you know if it's a good culture or not. And I feel like that's often, unfortunately, the truth. I think what you, is unique about us is we have very high retention of senior people. We have normal turnover in kind of that associate analyst. But once people kind of get there to be a VP or kind of senior associate, they tend to not leave. And, and I think that really helps on building a business because at the end of the day, I guess part of our job is deciding what deals to do. And that's where having voices issue their perspective, having consensus thinking, having actually people be willing to speak up and say, Reed, I disagree with you. <laughs> Um, and not have people be afraid of that, not have people be afraid of the repercussions of that. I'm not sure I've ever been a place where it truly is kind of as much like the right answer wins versus who's saying it. And I think that's unique and a big thing that's led to our success is we involve everyone in the decision making. But I think people often forget that kind of disagreement is good. That's always yeah. been the way we've operated. That's the way James and everyone operates. It's a central feature of our agency that the only way to get on my bad side is to be a wallflower because I, I want a collection of ideas and perspectives. You know, one plus one plus one equals nine is how we approach everything. 
When you think about sort of the relationships that you build with your sponsor clients and what are they looking for, what is it, at the, you know, cut, cut through the clutter, what are they really looking for? Because money's money, right? Terms are terms. What are they really looking for and how do you think that Deer Pass successfully delivers on that? You got to remember where people make their returns in the lower middle market is really either growth of the company or a very aggressive industry consolidation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a combination, but really it, 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 it's those two. There really isn't financial structure arbitrage. It just really doesn't <laughs> it, it exist in the lower middle market. And because of that, what they care most about is consistency mm-hmm. and whether what you say am is going to happen or the truth and like the biggest failure you can make is telling someone you want to do a deal and then two weeks later changing your mind that's that's the biggest way to lose a client that's the like they understand when you have to be a lender and kind of protect your downside what they can't have is lack of consistency or transparency or honesty and i think what anyone who's good both individually at the role of building sponsor relationships and being an originator as well as any firm really values kind of being transparent being consistent like the 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 car salesman approach would never work in this industry it just wouldn't that's not how the industry works that's not it, there, there's too much kind of repeat relationships, repeat interactions, referrals. Um, and I think that's the hard thing is, is how do you be their first call, which you're not going to do every deal they send you like that. That's just not, it's, it's not going to happen. You're not going to like them. They're not going to fit your credit bar, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. But how do you politely say, no, thank you, but still get the call for the next one. And I think that's a lot of just whether it be quick no, being transparent, being consistent. You don't want to say no too early such that some new finding would come out that would get you there. But you also don't want to lead them on and tell them we love it and then come back two weeks later for something you knew two weeks before. And, yeah, so and, related to all of this is that that requirement, don't waste my time, right? If, if you change your mind, lead me on other factors that end up the other guy, the other individual woman sort of says, you, you wasted my time, they will not call you back. I do think what people forget there sometimes because there's all these people out there that's just like, just say no more. And I'm like, I, I understand your point, but like sometimes you don't know where something's gonna go. And like, I always debate, do I have the right perspective? Do I not? Adam Grant has written on some of this of kind of what is the person who is the most successful? And I think it's like a strategic giver which is basically someone who gives their time but gives it hoping kind of a return 
and I think like my view and is like I'll always hop on the phone with people if people reach out on whatever reason. I want to squeeze in two more questions. Number one, you're having a beer or coffee with somebody who graduated from Wharton six months ago. What advice you give them? You know, you, the benefit of your perspective 15, 16, 17 years later. I think two things. Always leave every job with a good reputation. When someone gives their notice, the first thing I say to them is make sure you work those last whatever, weeks, month, however longer you're staying here. Because at some point in your career, I will probably get a backdoor reference on you. And that's true regardless. That's not just a Reed Van Gordon thing. That's unfortunately how this industry works. That's This industry is very small. We all know each other. And I think people often forget that. That kind of you want to make sure you leave with as strong of an impression as you tried to start with. Mm -hmm. I um, fully, fully agree with that. And... I'm not sure I've ever had a horror story, but I've heard of horror stories and it becomes like a beer talk and it's not worth it. And then the other thing, I think there's this view in general of like wanting to job hop or wanting to hop for a 10% pay raise. And sometimes that might be right. Sometimes you might hop around four times, get your pay raises and be a lot better off. Sometimes you won't be because maybe you'll be the first one released. If there's a problem, maybe mm -hmm. you won't have all that internal credibility to be more effective and to get the next promotion. The grass isn't always greener. Sometimes it was absolutely the right choice, but I, I, I think there's almost become this like glorified of like, I got a new job. And I'm like, I'm not sure. I'm also not sure, like being somewhere for 40 years, I don't also think is like the end all be all. You got to figure out what's right for you. But I think just showing some patience. I remember early on in my career, there were a couple times where I got kind of antsy and I had a senior person sit me down and just be like, Reed, show some patience. Give it six months. Give it nine months. I'm not sure there's a right or wrong. It's just uh, would encourage people to be more patient with everything. Okay. Last question before we wrap up. If you ran your own podcast, what would be the editorial platform? I think it would be a lot of what we talked about. It would be career progression, how you got to where you are, how you managed it, because I think there is a lot you can learn from how people navigated and how people got to where they are and I, I think we're often remiss about sitting down and having those conversations because we're always so like transactional in some sense of like we, yeah you go out for a beer but what do you catch up on you catch up on kind of how they're doing their family stuff like that you don't ever ask how did you get to where you did right and that's really the joy of what I'm doing is that I get to lead into people's personal stories the common, you know, kind of overlap, of course, is the industry and the experiences and understanding of, of the behaviors and things like that. But I find it fascinating to hear individual stories like yours and others. We do need to wrap up. I greatly appreciate your time. This was an unbelievably interesting convo and I uh, appreciate your time. Um, and, you know, look forward to uh, continuing our dialogue together and 
more to come. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate it. I've listened to all of them so far. Partly as prep, partly as interested, but thank you for having me and I um, appreciate it. From all of us at Monogram Group, thanks for tuning in to Beer Stories for Private Equity, Episode 7. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as we release new episodes. Please check out the show notes in the description from today's episode. Our email is podcast at monogramgroup.com. Feel free to email us with any comments or questions and we'll try to answer them in our next episode.